Today on episode number 169 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, I speak with Kathy Davidson about her new book, The New Education, How to Revolutionize the University to Prepare Students for a World in Flux. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I get to welcome back to the show, Dr. Kathy Davidson. She's an educational innovator and a distinguished scholar of the history of technology. She's an outspoken proponent of active ways of learning, as you'll hear in the episode, that help students to understand and navigate the radically changed global world in which we now all live, work, and learn. The 2016 recipient of the Ernest J. Boyer Award for Significant contributions to higher education, she champions new ideas and methods for learning and professional development in school, the workplace, and in everyday life. Kathy, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. It's a pleasure to be here, Bonnie. Thank you so much for having me. We have not spoke for a long time, but I have been reading your work and following you on Twitter, and I just so appreciate you as a resource for not just the institutions that you lead, but around the world. You, you're you such a leader in this area, and you're also a teacher, and so I'm going to ask you to be a teacher for us as we start out our conversation, and we need a little history lesson today. In fact, this is a week weeks, months we're having where we all need more more history, do we not? We sure do. We sure do. And correct, proper, fact-based history, not yes. the mythologies. Yes. Yes. So we need a history lesson today on higher education. Can you talk about how what we call higher education today, how it started out? Sure. So the, let me start with the cliche. The thing that people always say, reformers, higher, the thing higher education reformers always say is, Higher education hasn't changed for 2,000 years since Socrates walked the floor of the academy. And that sounds great. And in fact, if we're talking about teaching, uh, it goes a long, long way before Socrates. People have been teaching ever since there have been humans who are passing on skills to other humans. So that's kind of silly, but it sounds good. In fact, higher education has existed for a very long time um, all over the world, way earlier in India, for example, and in ancient Mesopotamia and in Africa than in the West. Um, The first Western universities considered the University of Bologna in the 11th century, early 11th century. But something major, major happened at the end of the 18th century in Europe and in the end and the last uh, half of the 19th century in America. And um, that was the creation of the modern research university. And it's astonishing how many features of the current university were changed, basically between about 1860 and 1925. Uh, majors, minors, distribution requirements, general education requirements, graduate school, professional schools, selective admissions tests, standardized testing, IQ tests, 
the list is just endless. It goes on and on and on of things that need no explanation because that, the modern research university, is what we've inherited. And interestingly, we've inherited it even in forms where we don't have the modern research university. For example, the the liberal arts college has Mm. persisted. Community colleges started about the same time as the modern research university. Um, Those should be very different, but the same people that were responsible for making the modern American research university also created the the associations for credentialing, accrediting, and ranking the modern American universities. And guess what? They're all ranked against Harvard. So whatever was happening at Harvard carried over and became implicitly the standards by which all of higher education, even quite radically different higher education, is ranked today. The principal person that I talk about in the book who is by far the towering figure in the 19th century was um, Charles Eliot. Uh, He was a Harvard-trained chemist, theoretical chemist, whose family lost everything in the panic of 1857. And so instead of being uh, living on his family's legacy, he had to work for gainful employment. And in 1857, you could not be a college professor and be supported by your income. It was assumed that college professors were from an elite class and were really supported by family money and their salary was kind of an honorarium. It didn't really count. Hmm. So Elliot embarked on, he thought about going into business and then thought, no, I'm going to go into the business of higher education. And in 1869, he wrote an essay that was incredibly influential called, ta-da, The New Education, which is the same title that I've chosen for my book. And it was Mm -hmm. a manifesto that said the Puritan system of education had to be totally transformed for the new age of industrialization and urbanization, uh, the major changes of the 19th century that transformed American society, and that there were whole worlds um, of a managerial corporate class uh, that had to be credentialed and fields that had to be specialized and disciplines that had to be created for this brand new modern industrial uh, managerial class. And um, he wrote about all that in The New Education, the essay, The New Mm -hmm. Education, that appeared in the Atlantic Monthly. Harvard was going through a crisis at the time. Uh, At this time, Elliot was a professor at MIT, and Harvard hired him to be its president, the youngest president in Harvard's history. And he served in that capacity for 40 years and actually was able to take his manifesto and turn it into actual practice, not only at Harvard, But he and other friends, many of whom were educated at Harvard and other elite schools, set about to totally transform the system of education. And as I said, also create the systems of credentialing and ranking um, institutions of higher education according to their new system so that if you weren't modernizing, you were receiving a low ranking, you weren't getting the same kind of accreditation. So it was an incredibly effective way of really transforming the system of higher education in the United States, even though the United States does not have one national system. It has many different kinds of educational um, institutions, public, private, large, small, liberal arts colleges, professional schools, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is optimistic because I think if all of Charles Eliot and his pals could radically, radically transform, transform the institutions of higher education um, in the 19th century, we can too. Mm-hmm. It took them, it took, it took um, basically a hundred, well, uh, 70, 60 years between 1860 and 1925 
for the massive changes of the 19th century. It's going to take us that long, too, but we can do it, and I think we have the same kind of urgency in the post-Internet age where, again, how we live and how we work has been so radically transformed in the last decades that we're in a situation exactly like the one that Charles Eliot was in when he said we need a new education uh, for the 19th century. We need a new education now. Would you contrast for us how you see us thinking today about preparing students and how they used to think about preparing students and what still looks the same or, or what may be different? So the biggest similarity is Elliot was trying to move away from a system where you got into Harvard because your dad went to Harvard and your granddad went to Harvard and your great-granddad went to Harvard and dad is specific. Women were not allowed into Harvard. So we're talking specifically about patrimony. And he went to a system of meritocracy where you got into Harvard because you did well on exams and you did well, well on exams and then you had a rigorous course of study that was prescribed and you had exams and grades. That was a new invention of that time period as well. People weren't graded A, B, C, D before that. In fact, Mount Holyoke College was the first college to institute A, B, C, D, F grading. And if you go back into the archives of Mount Holyoke, you find out that they didn't have A, B, C, D, E because people were afraid that if somebody had an E on the transcript, someone would assume it meant excellent. Mm -hmm. So they adopted the F instead for failure, even though A, B, C, D don't have any meaning, F suddenly means failure. Uh, what I love is the second major institution to adopt grading You know, the, the, um, was the American Meatpackers Institution. And if you go back into the archives of the American Meatpackers Institution, you find people also debated. But they didn't debate about whether the lowest grade should be E or F. They debated about how terrible it was to reduce something as complicated as the assessment of sirloin and chuck to something as stupid and bland and basic as an ABCDF grade? I mean, why would you do that? And so from the very beginning, American meatpacking uh, meat had a letter grade, but you could find out who gave that grade, why they gave that grade, what other kinds of grades they were giving, what the range of, in other words, what we would now call metadata traveled with every single piece of meat. And apparently, I, I interviewed somebody about four years ago who said that's still the case. You can still trace all of the comments and the decision-making of meatpackers today on each piece of meat. Now, that's pretty interesting because when my kid graduates from school or I give an A, that's kind of the end of the matter, right? That's what's on Mm -hmm. your transcript is something as blunt as a grade. That has persisted, and it's so much a product of the 19th century. Remember, this is the age of Frederick Winslow Taylor, the great theorist of scientific Um, labor production, where you measure every output and you measure things objectively. So this is the era when this multiple choice test is invented. There was no idea that you would reduce anything as complicated as the human mind or a a difficult question to an ABCD answer. That just would have been considered ridiculous by Newton or one of the great thinkers of the uh, Renaissance. But we still, and in fact, we've become more hyper-conscious about grading, such that right now in America, grading is absolutely correlating with social class, with a few exceptions. But in general, you can put a map of social class and economic um, school districts on a, on a screen, and you can put test scores on a screen. You can then 
put up one or the other without a label and people can't remember whether they were they're looking at the income distribution chart or the SAT score chart because mm-hmm. there's so much overlap between them. And the reason is our, our school districts, public school districts are paid for by, by local money. So uh, local taxpayers, um, they're locally based. So you have um, economic discrimination built into the system. So we think we have a system that objectively measures talent. What we have is a 19th century very, very simplistic and reductionist system of how you evaluate that reduces many complex qualities to something very blunt, like either a score in an SAT exam or a letter grade. I would say that's one of the most devastating, persisting, and irrelevant features of 19th century education that exists in the 20th century. We now live in a world where anyone who has an idea can tweet it to the rest of the world or, or go on and make a website on the rest of the world. And we all know that includes the most powerful single human being on the planet can wake up at 3 a.m. and tweet whatever he happens to be thinking about. We don't have an education system that's designed for a world where anyone who has an idea can tweet that idea to any, or can communicate that idea to anybody else with an internet connection. We don't have a world where... People are constantly in positions of tremendous decision-making power with huge consequences to their lives or to society. We're not teaching people how to have that responsibility, nor, and I'm now going to flip it, we have an education system that teaches you how to prepare for a world where your profession can disappear overnight, Mm -hmm. right? You're a taxi driver and you could have thought 10 years ago, well, no one's going to take this job away. We're going to have taxis as long as we have cars. Well, here comes Uber, here comes the self-driving cars, and now that's no longer a fait accompli that that we're going to have taxi drivers. Uh, Journalism and the music industry, uh, many industries have gone through enormous disruptions. And we're also not preparing students for a future where they don't know their future, a future where any decision has to be considered um, uh, temporary because anything can change overnight. We're preparing students in a system that was geared for credentializing, formalizing, literally disciplining knowledge, taking complex knowledge and put it into, putting it into silos, and um, a system that makes it very hard to think in complex terms across, for example, the boundaries of qualitative and quantitative. Um, those are such rigid divisions in our universities. To think beyond skills training versus Thinking, being able to think in complex human and social ways about what those skills mean. What does it mean to be a computer programmer and not have taken any classes in history? What does it mean to be have technical skills uh, in the medical field and not know about what the social, human, psychological impacts of um, your medical interventions are? You know, in other words, we've divided things up into very strange and restrictive categories in a world where those categories are completely merged and mixed and changing every minute. We just don't know what's going to happen next. I grew up, my family always was in agriculture. And ah. it, it won't surprise you to find out that they're not still in agriculture. Yes, but but yes. I feel it wired in me to want things to be more predictable. To you know, it's it's um even though I, I really embrace and enjoy innovation and technology and I mean it's something I read about on a daily basis, yet as much as I know that I, I, I'm intrigued by that, I also know at the core of my being, I have to constantly do the work 
to recognize yes. what you're saying, not just to know that it's true in my mind, but to even have it go further into my into my gut, you know, into my being so that well, I, I can know, better be better, just be a better teacher through that. Well, actually, though, it's interesting that you say that because agriculture is always the example I give as a distinction between the pre-modern world and the industrial world in the 19th century. And my perspective is I grew up in in working class Chicago, urban Chicago, and then moved to a suburb of Chicago a little later in my life, my childhood. But my first husband was from a ranching family in rural Alberta, 200 people in 200 square miles at the base of the Rocky Mountains. And for 25 years, I helped deliver calves. That was very exciting mm. to be out there helping to deliver um, yeah. Hereford calves in the wintertime in the snowdrifts of Alberta. And one thing I know, and when you go back to looking at the archives of the 19th century, is the principal feature of anyone in agriculture is there's many decisions that you make on your own. So an example I often give is if you have it in your mental to-do list that you're going to go fix the barbed wire fences on a given day and you drive out to your field and instead of fixing the fence, you realize some of your cows have gotten tied up in the, in the barbed wire fence and they're bleeding you are an idiot and you're going to lose your farm if you fix the fence rather than take care of those cows that are bleeding. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to make decisions all the time mm -hmm. because you're, especially if you're dealing with animal husbandry, livestock depends on it. I mean, there are constant decisions you're making on your own. The big project of the 19th century was to train, train farmers how to be factory workers. And one of the reasons compulsory public education for K through 12 is so much about time. Uh, dividing up subjects into times. There's a special time you start school, whether you're some, some states it's five years and um, six months, some years it's age six, but it's a rigid. You, this, you must go to school at this time and you must spend so many days in school and you must have so many hours of each day in school. All of that is it's partly designed to teach farmers who wake up when the sun comes up, who go to sleep when the sun goes to bed, you know, who do things based on weather, not on clock time, but on weather. That's a disaster in a factory. Mm -hmm. You don't want a farmer saying, well, I think the line is slowing up, so I better intervene here. You want the farmer um, schooled in how to call a manager over, a supervisor, the shop manager over, to fix the line, not to make independent decisions himself or herself. And you want them to work on machine time. In fact, one of my favorite is the word grade comes from the incline that um, manufactured items are traveling on um, in an assembly line. When they fall off the grade, they literally don't make the grade. And that's where the phrase graded and grading comes from is do things make the grade or not make the grade. But it's all about training people not to make independent decisions. It's a really, really different relationship to productivity. Tell us about technophobia and technophilia. <laughs> well, uh, let me tell a story. My, I, I'd like to tell the story. This is my husband Ken's story about being in, in middle school. He was a super smart kid, and all the smart kids were so excited, excited about this in math class, were so excited about this new invention of the solid-state calculator, which at the time was still expensive. It cost about $275 but was within reach. And some of the parents who really wanted their kids to go on to be MIT professors or, you know, part of Sputnik and build this next space engine were willing to buy those for their kids. And their math teachers got together and decided, no, they were not allowed to use calculators. And the idea was that they would, it would hurt them somehow 
having a calculator would mean they wouldn't learn math as well and it would actually destroy their brains. It would hurt their ability to succeed in math. Now, the kicker in that is so they, they banned calculators from the classroom. This would have been in the 1970s, but they still allowed slide rules and taught slide rules. So there was this idea that the old conventional technology of the slide rule, well, that was fine. That wouldn't hurt you. That would, be, that would help you mathematically, but the new invention, the calculator, was somehow going to hurt you. The kicker on, in that is the slide rule is invented in Newton's era, and there were many people back in Newton's era who felt that anything that increased your human capacities beyond God-given capacities meant you were a creature of the devil. And it didn't go so well for scientists if you were considered of the devil's party. Galileo was in the, you know, in the tower. People were executed. It was not a good thing. So Newton actually taught mathematics to his students on slide rules in secret because he was afraid of being punished. So every generation has some new technology which we're convinced is going to destroy us. That's technophobia, mm. where you place a kind of power in the technology. You assume this technology can do terrible things to you as a human or to your children. And so you ban the technology, even though, and typically you ban it in school, even though it's ubiquitous everywhere else. So what I say as a counter to technophobia is instead of, saying we will ban iPads, we will ban iPhones, we will ban laptops in our classrooms uh, because they all hurt us and they hurt our ability to learn. I say, no, 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 let's think about the most challenging ways we can teach students so they learn the most effective ways to use those technologies, not just in the classroom. I don't care what they get on their test scores. I'm more concerned about what they do in their everyday life when they're not in school, when they have to have uh, a laptop there and I'm not their teacher telling them, what and how to do technology properly. So I'm a, I believe in um, being skeptical about technology and learning how, and therefore learning how to use it well and effectively. And how about technophilia? Technophilia is the opposite. So technophobia leads to things like research studies, most of which are really bad research design. I don't want to make a completely blanket statement, so I'm not going to name names, but there's some terrible research out there that Anyone looking at the research design would say, well, I know I can predict the result without anybody even um, being um, studied. I mean, just by the way that's set up, I can predict what the answer is going to be. But, uh, you know, all the things about, you know, you learn better with handwriting than with typewriters and you but then by typing. And so therefore, we can't have students taking notes on laptops or, uh, you know, just uh, many, many technophobic studies. The end that that the b- bottom line is we're going to ban things from our universities. We're going to ban laptops in schools. We're going to ban iPads. The opposite is saying, no, to be modern, we're going to put iPads and um, iPhones and laptops and course management systems into every classroom, and then the students will learn automatically. The one thing we know about learning is, I'm talking now on a cognitive level. My last book was about the brain and how, how we think and about cognitive science. The one thing definitionally we know about learning is it's not automatic. If something's automatic, it's a habit. The whole point of a habit is you don't have to think about it. Habits are those things we do without thinking about it. That's not learning. As soon to learn, we exactly have to think about where we are now and make some kind of change. So we're either adding to what we do now, we're altering what we do now, we're accomplishing something that we don't do now. You know, in other words, we're always making some kind of a change. So definitionally, it can't be automatic. In our classrooms, 
to think that by putting an iPad into, into a classroom without altering all the different ways we learn with that iPad is really automating a 19th century idea of education, which is a passive theory of education, which is the professor or the teacher or the iPad dumping information into the brain of the student rather than the student having to grapple with, understand, interpret, judge, mm -hmm. critique that, various, that very source of information. You used a word which it seems like that is just the key to transforming our conversations about this, and that is that we need to introduce something that challenges them. I mean, why mm. why are they distracted by, you know, Facebook and Twitter and and Instagram and all of that while while they're in our classes, hypothetically taking <laughs> notes? Well, they're not being challenged. And one of the things exactly. I talk about is there. There's a. It's, I'm not giving any kind of an endorsement, but there's a flashcard app called Quizlet. And if you have flashcards, it lets you play a game called Quizlet live in your classes. And the only reason I use it as an example is if you were to come into a classroom and see students playing Quizlet live, and again, I'm not endorsing that particular one. There's lots of great ways you can do this. Nobody's doing anything <laughs> except being child because it's a little scoreboard totally. on the on the on the projector they're trying to win this game competing against everyone else and so they're just the whole room comes alive but the weird thing for some people who aren't accustomed to that I pretty much disappear yes exactly that's the single most important thing we can do in our classrooms today is disappear mm -hmm. I mean I um, that is what I call student-centered learning versus credential-centered learning and it is making every student so invested in their own learning that they're not going to look at the laptop. They're going to do Quizlet, and they're going to score better in Quizlet. Um, my favorite example of that, again, goes back to my mother-in-law in rural Alberta who taught in a three-room schoolhouse. She herself had maybe a high school education. I'm not sure. Her students were very, very rural, very, very poor. It was the last place in Canada to get even rural electrification, even when I was there. In the 70s, there was still an outhouse, which as a Chicago girl was like, whoa, what is, what is this about? You know, this is a very, very rural place that produced more PhDs, MDs, and veterinary medicine doctors than any other town or city in the province of Alberta, except for the two major cities, Edmonton and Calgary. How did that happen? Because she broke all the rules. Sometimes she literally locked out the school superintendent, and she had her third, fourth, and fifth graders play games. She would put the fifth graders, the big kids, against the third and fourth graders and have them quiz each other. Friday um, would, was entirely, the entire game day was game day, and it was all about challenges. And the person, the group, whether it was the third and fourth graders one week or the fifth graders the other week, whoever won the previous week's challenge – had to spend the week coming up with test questions for the other kids and for the kids in the other group. And then the whole day was spent with the kids inventing these test questions for their enemies, you know, either the big fifth graders or those silly little third and fourth graders. Well, the kids were learning calculus in this place where it's surprising they could even count to 10. I mean, there was no emphasis on higher education in this in this very, very rural community. No other community around there had test results, anything like that. These were kids that were winning scholarships to places like the University of Chicago uh, from rural Alberta. It was astonishing, and it was entirely by this method of what you called 
so well and, and put so well with the game you described, challenges. Mm-hmm. These were kids who were given the power to challenge one another. In my university classrooms, I start by having my students write, um, sometimes I call it terms of service agreement for the class, sometimes I call it a class constitution, but I have the students actually think about what do, what do we want to learn in this class when we've signed up for this topic what do we want to learn about this topic? How do we want to learn it? What are the terms of agreement? What is our responsibility going to be? And they do that collectively. I often have them write a syllabus together. I have them divide in teams and do units for the other students where they have to come up with challenging ways that students learn. I have been doing this for about a decade. I was a central administrator for about eight years, and then I, I came back into classroom teaching. It was a turning point for me, whether I wanted to go on and be a college president or come back to the classroom. And it was so exciting with what was happening with the Internet and what was happening with learning. I decided I wanted to really study the brain more thoroughly, study technology more thoroughly, and be back as a real teacher in the classroom because so many theorists of education reform don't know anything about learning and don't know anything about students. They just really are making it up. They're not really classroom teachers. But in my classrooms, I started challenging the students to design the class. I can go back to my before I started doing student-centered learning syllabi and my after student-centered learning syllabi, what my students accomplished in a term. There is no, there's no comparison. It's as if three years are happening in one semester. Whenever I challenge my students to do something, at any institution I've been at, I have to worry about them not doing, about them doing too much. I never have to worry about them being bored and not doing enough. If you trust students and challenge students, it's astonishing what they can accomplish and what they want to accomplish. And we know the number one cause of dropping out of school besides economic penury by, not, by having such economically stressed situations that you have to work and you can't stay in school is boredom. It's not things being too hard. It's being, things being too easy. Um, I was a kid, the kid who hated school. I didn't need a laptop or a cell phone or Facebook or social media to keep me from not paying attention in class. I could do it with like a week old student <laughs> newspaper. I could do it by counting the number of, you know, uh, ink spots on the wall. I could do it by looking at faces in the wood grain. I Anything rather than pay attention. I was totally turned off and it didn't require a laptop. A laptop just would be a lot more interesting and probably educational way than being talked at by a teacher uh, and being bored by what, what's happening in a classroom. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share some recommendations. And anyone who listens to the show knows that I'm a huge podcast fan, not just in terms of getting to talk to amazing people like you, Kathy, but also just what is available to us to listen to on our own. Amazing. Laura Paschini knows that I'm a podcast geek. And we were talking recently, she said, you have to listen to the turnaround podcast because they turn the tables and they interview all these incredible interviewers. And the one that I just, one of my just podcast uh, heroes is Ira Glass, who is the creator and producer of This American Life. And it reminded me as I listened to that episode of an episode that is just one I will never forget. And it's called Ask a Grown-Up. And very specifically at the end of the episode, he shares in the most vulnerable way I've ever seen him share about the death of his friend, Mary. And I'm going to play just the beginning. If you've listened to it before, you know that he has different acts for the show. So I'm going to play just a little bit of act four 
And then Kathy and I will talk a little bit about Ira and, and a little bit about what we can glean from This American Life. Act four, ask a very grown woman. A few days ago, my friend Mary Ahern died. Mary was 89. For the last 10 years, I've talked to her nearly every day. She and I met in the dog park, and we organized our lives to meet there at 10 each night, which took a little more organization for me than for her. She'd been retired for years. I had a job. I traveled for my job. She'd had many very old-fashioned New York City jobs. She was a telephone switchboard operator and then the switchboard supervisor at Altman's department store for years when both Altman's and telephone switchboards existed. Lived on a pension from a union in a rent-controlled apartment. When I traveled, and when her health eventually stopped her from going to the park, we talk on the phone every night. Okay, this is a very personal thing to say on the radio, but my wife and I separated a few years ago. And so for years now, Mary has usually been the person who I talked to last before I'd go to sleep. It's very hard for me to stop that there, but I'll probably get myself into copyright trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, oh, it's so beautiful. And what is really profound to me that I've been thinking about a lot these last couple of days, we had our annual faculty gathering. And our annual faculty gathering is about as uh, non-vulnerable as anything that you could possibly imagine. It is your stereotypical <laughs> stereotypical, you know, conversations and, and a lot of those conversations based around ego and, and vulnerability, the, the fear of being vulnerable like that. And what's amazing to me is how when we model for other people telling our stories in a more vulnerable way, how it becomes contagious and how we can give the gift to other people to then feel more free to share their stories. Uh, Kathy, I doubt that you know this, but I aired an episode a while back on my course evaluations, and this has never happened before, but I just very spur of the moment just began to weep. Oh, dear. And it was very embarrassing to think, oh, oh my gosh, oh. thousands and thousands of people just heard me do that. And I'm so glad that I did. Yeah, no, because of course. Because of course. people have just been flooding me with stories of their own yeah. pain and grief. And just how when we're vulnerable like that, how you can invite other people into Absolutely. the pain of the work that we do. So this is just a wonderful story of just a man who who lost his friend and spoke, he spoke to her every night, every night. And she's gone now. And he's just, and, and I just connected with him of, of in all of his pain. And it was, it was a very nourishing thing. And I'd love for people to go listen. I'll put a link in the oh, show. I notes. can't wait to hear it. Yeah. Can't wait to hear it. Yeah. And I'll pass it over to you now, Kathy, to make some recommendations, or if you wanted to say anything about this American life too. <laughs> well, just, I perked up when Ira was talking so beautifully about his friend who worked at the B. Altman's department store. That is the building I'm sitting in right now. Oh, the B. Altman's department store is now the graduate center of city university of New York. Oh. I mean, it's just, that's the building. That is the old, every, you know, the Graduate Center is in the old B. Altman's department store in New York City. So it's a very interesting connection. I love Ira Glass. And in fact, the book I'm going to recommend, uh, it's a book rather than a podcast, is not dissimilar from what you've told me because it's perhaps the most open, candid, generous, self-effacing, teacherly, memoir I've ever read, and it's um, by the great journalist and professor, um, Roxane Gay, and it's called Hunger, 
She's perhaps best known as being, uh, she wrote a book called Bad Feminist, and she's a humorist, she's a journalist, she's a strong African-American feminist activist. This book, though, is about the fact that um, she said she no longer, um, she's lost about 150 pounds, but when she was um, first writing the book, she weighed 537 pounds. And it's a book that tells you about why that happened. Uh, She talks about how this weight gain happened at a very specific time in her life after a young, she was 12. And when she had a young boy, she had a crush on, she says she loved him. And he started getting more and more promiscuous sexually with her and um, arranged for her and, and actually arranged for himself and his friends to gang rape her in a cabin in a woods at, at, at which she had pro- began by protesting vehemently and by the end was so rendered into this mute, un, I mean, passive, almost she describes it almost like a thing, numbed out of, ex- out of any kind of, um, and now I'm going to uh, express emotion. It was so emotional that she wanted to control her body in some way and she started doing that by enormous eating. And what this book tells you about is allows you to understand the mentality of somebody who's been astonished, I mean, betrayed and victimized beyond imagining. It allows you to understand what it's like to walk through the world as this person that the world thinks of not just as um, big, but as grotesque and as your fault. And so there's a punitive aspect. She talks about the humiliation here. She's this very, very famous person. She tells a story about being in a a keynote speaker with Gloria Steinem. And the speakers hadn't arranged for the fact that she was the size she is and has the physical disability she has. And it took half an hour for them to get her up on the stage in front of an audience that was filling up. And what a horrific humiliation that was and she talks about somehow getting through the metaphors she uses are almost the feeling of being raped how she somehow managed to mumble through that keynote event that should have been a highlight of her career Gloria Steinem is one of her heroes and instead was a moment of total abject humiliation and what it felt like and how she went home and what that felt like to be home and her and what's so astonishing about this book is how she lets you into her perspective so suddenly I am not able to walk across the street without thinking about a disability in a different way, about the ways the whole world is designed for a certain body type, a certain body size, um, the ways we're so punitive towards other people. And she taught me a different way of seeing the world and being in the world in a different kind of empathy than I've ever had before. How I want to tie that back to my idea of the new education is I think everybody who goes to college um, I like to say should make their major minor. And by that, I mean, if you, you know, do what you have to do to graduate, fill your requirements. But then once your requirements are done, use this very unique opportunity at college or university to take as many chances as you can. All over the university, you're finding people who have dedicated their lives to things you know nothing about whatsoever. In the same way I didn't when I knew this, did this Roxane Gay book. Mm. And you can find out whole worlds of things that you probably aren't going to find out most places in your life. And if only students had the opportunity and the freedom and the confidence to be able to learn new worlds, we wouldn't actually have to do very much else with college. I mean, I do, I have a whole lot of prescriptions for how to make college better, but the single most important things are 
the word you use, challenges, and another word you use, vulnerability, and a word I'm going to add to that, openness, and being able to explore and to see points of view that you normally are blind to. And uh, this book, Hunger, by Roxane Gay, certainly did that for me and was a model to me of the best kind of education and learning in the best sense of you started it not understanding something and you ended it feeling like you understood something that it was a rare privilege, privilege to be able to learn. Kathy, thank you for writing The New Education, How to Revolutionize the University to Prepare Students for a World in Flux. And Kathy, thank you for coming back on to Teaching in Higher Ed and for just joining me for this conversation. It was such a pleasure, Bonnie, and thank you for all you do. I don't know if you realize the impact and importance you have in the world, but we count on you. So thank you so much for, for what you do, and thank you for having me back. Thanks to all of you for listening to today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 169 with Kathy Davidson. If you'd like to see the link to her new book, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash 169. I occasionally like to give my pleading to you to, if you haven't yet written a review or rated the show, on whatever service it is that you use to listen to it, this would be a great time to do that. That just helps us expand our listening audience. And it also helps us through algorithmic magic. It helps us move up in the rankings on iTunes and other platforms. So please consider supporting the show in that small way. It doesn't take long to do. And I'd love to spread the word more about the show. But of course, you can also just tell your colleague about it as well. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you next time. 